Funding for the Hinckley Report is made possible in part by the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation and the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report as a podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe at your go-to podcast platform. Good evening, and welcome to The Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Mara Carabello, president of the Exoro Group, Derek Brown, chair of the Utah Republican Party, and Jeff Merchant, chair of the Utah Democratic Party. So glad to have you all here. This has been such an interesting week full of ups and downs. You are just so much into the politics. We're going to talk a lot about Utah races today, what the results were, why we got the results we did, and what we can see going forward. But I want to start with turnout. Uh, let's just start with that, because this has been a big year. Uh, Derek, um, we see a million and a half people in the state of Utah. Mm -hmm. It looks like their vote. This could be up to 68%, uh, a number we've not seen since mm -hmm. the early 90s. Why? Well, uh, we knew this was going to be big starting, I mean, if you look at the primary election, we had not just more people than we had ever had in the past. As a Republican Party, we had over twice as many in June that voted than it ever voted. And so we knew this was going to be big. But I think one of the main reasons is you've got a combination of the fact that everyone votes by mail. So we've made it a lot easier. And then we have just the excitement and the emotions surrounding a presidential election with a candidate that's well-known, polarizing, and generating turnout. Yeah, so Jeff, it seems like this is not just turnout on one side either. This is across-the-board turnout. What, what did you do in the state of Utah with the Democratic Party to try to drive the vote up? Well, you know, like Derek said, we knew that there was going to be uh, a lot of interest in this race in particular. There are a lot of angry Democrats out there. Uh, and really, as a party, we it was hard with COVID, right? Mm -hmm. But we really focused a lot on um, some new technologies. We also focused on text messaging. We focused on phone calls. And we did do a little bit, depending on the area and how safe it was, going door to door. Um, really, I think that the one area where I wish we did OK, but I wish we we could have done better was more uh, registering of voters. The reality is, is that with COVID, it made it harder. An element that shouldn't be overlooked is despite all of us political scientists and the best efforts, uh, it was chic to vote for the first time in a long time. You saw apparel encouraging people to vote. You saw celebrities and athletes saying, have a voting plan, get involved. And and that was such a difference uh, than, than what we've had in America for the last several years. And some element outside of the political apparatus that I hope continues to encourage particularly young people that it is cool and it is chic to be a voter. Mara, but when you heard those those cries to vote, which we did hear from all across, was that a particular party or was this something you see just everyone is starting to feel like they need to be part of this process? Because some think that every time they heard someone say, you need to vote, that's maybe picking one side or the other. You know, I mean, I think we are polarized. We'll talk, I think, a lot about that today in that both parties are both dimensions. I think that MAGA Nation has a strong sensibility and uh, they are very directed and know uh, who they are and, and what they want to achieve. And I do think the Democrats were motivated. So I think uh, most people were encouraged to vote for a party. As usual, I don't think local elections got the traction that they should, even though they, as we'll discuss today, are really significant. But I do think in some ways, 
uh, it is the polarization that motivated people. Mm -hmm. so, so, Derek, uh, nationally, this is about 67% right now of the country voted as well. Uh, with your party, with the Republicans, what was happening on a nationwide scale to try to get more people to keep the president in office was one of the primary motivations. Well, that was clearly where, where everything was, was focused. And so I think that was a lot of the movement nationally was to, to figure out how we can sort of capture that here locally. But the thing that we were kind of dealing with here in Utah is that the, the president didn't have the approvals here that you would expect an incumbent president within his own party to have. And so the question was, how does that trickle down and affect positively or negatively some of the more local races? And so we spent a lot of time kind of trying to sort of finesse that issue and in a sense, uh, capitalize on it the best we could, but understand that there are also Republicans who had issues with the president, primarily his personality and some of the things that, the way he approaches things, and, and try to try to sort of work with all those issues to do the best that we could. Well, we start talking about the, the two kind of approaches that people are taking. Some have, you know, you, you got your party and you've got your opinion about the people inside that party. Jeff, I'm, I'm curious about that because this was the first time in Utah that you did not have the option of doing a straight party ticket. You could not just vote, which sometimes people would say, hey, I don't really love this person, but I'm a part of this party, so I'm going to I'm going to hold my nose and I'm going to do it. People had to make a gut call every single time on every position. How did that impact this election? Well, I think that the one issue uh, that is certainly true, and Derek has alluded to it, is that there were a lot of Republicans this time around in the state of Utah that had a really hard time with Donald Trump. They didn't have a hard time with Spencer Cox, but with Donald Trump, they did. And so, you know, I think that not having a straight party option opened up the opportunity for some of those voters to be able to be more thoughtful about how they voted, which is a, a big positive. There are some negatives to straight party voting, and one of those is, is that we see drop-off on every single one of those races. So by the time you get down to some of those really local races, races that can be very important and can influence people's day-to-day -day lives, those votes aren't, there aren't as many votes. For example, if you voted for an auditor or a treasurer, uh, when we look at the numbers in a few weeks, I think that we're going to see a lot more people having voted um, and for president, for uh, governor, for attorney general, but then they drop off and they don't vote at the bottom of that ballot. Uh, to your one point about the, the we that you were mentioning, uh, s some have the impression that a straight party ticket in a Utah, which tends to lean right in, in a lot of places, that it just benefits the Republicans, hurts the Democrats. Is that true? Who does it help? Who does it hurt? I think it depends on the county and it depends on the area. Um, you know, this is an issue of a lot of controversy within my party. Uh, I would say that the numbers indicate that it benefits Democrats in, in Salt Lake County to have straight party voting. Can I add, I think that's probably one of the reasons that for many years it was the Democrats in the legislature pushing this and it finally passed this last year. By a Democrat. And by a Democrat, Patrice Arendt, who, who you know, spent a lot of time explaining, you know, conceptually and, and philosophically why it makes sense. And there's a lot of reasons why I think it does, but ironically, it was right after passing that that I think the Republican Party probably benefited in light of this dynamic with President Trump and some of the Republicans who may not be as comfortable with him. Uh, Mara, one, one last point on this. If you look back to 2016 in the in state of Utah, uh, President Trump, about 40% of his votes came from a straight party ticket vote. I'm, I'm curious how you see that, how that played out here, given this backdrop, which is this, and I saw it in my neighborhood. It was not at all uncommon for me to see a sign in a person's yard for both parties. 
Do you notice right? that? Without question, in my, I did. It had happened in my neighborhood frequently. Uh, and, and Utah has a history of breaking national with local, and, and it's a history that I'm proud of. Uh, I do think that in the long run, um, it will benefit the citizens. I do think for party organization, it, the straight ticket is a benefit. But I do think for the citizen voter, particularly as these gentlemen have discussed on an off year or a non-presidential year, I think you will see that really competitive races who were maybe decided before by party label, when you can bring it down to the candidate's name, I think you'll see more competitive races down ballot non-presidential years. Mm -hmm. So interesting to see that dynamic play out. Can we talk about the winners and losers and why for a moment? Mm -hmm. Well, we're all winners, <laughs> but, but one gets to take the chair, right? So let, let's talk about the uh, the race for governor, first of all. Okay, Derek, give us a Spencer Cox. Uh, we still have a pretty decent number of votes outstanding being counted in some parts of the state, particularly in Salt Lake County, but it looks like he's about 65%. Chris Peterson, 31%. Margin's not gonna close there. We have our next governor pick. Talk about we that do. race. Well, and I think the, the, the race was called by the AP, I think, um, the ballots were released at eight o'clock, and I think they they called it at eight o two. So you know it's. It, but I you know what I love about this race, and, and Jeff and I have talked about this. I love the fact that we have both of our candidates who got together and and created this video that basically said, look, we're running against each other. We don't agree on a lot of stuff, but we do agree on the stuff that matters, and we agree on being civil and and showing each other respect and respecting the results. And and it got national traction. It was on Good Morning America, on BBC, and and I love that as a state we can. Show showcase that, that, yeah, we're going to fight. I mean, Jeff and I disagree on a lot of stuff, but when push comes to shove, you know, what matters for Utah is what matters to us. And I think we saw that in the governor's race. So it was a great example of, of kind of showcasing the, uh, showcasing the best of Utah. Jeff, what did you think about that, that commercial, about that effort from Chris Peterson and Spencer Cox? Did you like that? Because that wasn't universal, even in the state, uh, how that happened. <laughs> I mean, from the Democratic Party, how did you feel about that? Well, I certainly think there were some people that had a little bit of trepidation about the uh, the commercial. But look, here's the bottom line. Wouldn't it have been fantastic to see that same thing happen at the presidential scale? Uh, we had a, a certain race uh, for Congress here in Utah that have been great to see a little bit more of that. I think that here, here's the bottom line, and, and maybe we'll get into this later, but we have a lot of thinking to do in this country about what our politics are looking like. It's clear that we are a divided nation right now. But, you know, I mean, this it's, it's a very, very, very old adage that a house divided against itself cannot stand. And the reality is, is we have problems in this country. And there are a lot of people that are afraid. And I, I really do commend um, Spencer Cox and Chris Peterson for deciding to take uh, the high road in this case. And I don't think anybody can criticize them for what the message itself was. Yeah. That's true. Uh, but I want to reinforce, I mean, the insertion of that voice, that positivity, um, the focus on what we share was so critical. And I, too, want to applaud both of the gubernatorial candidates for um, putting that out there. But I do agree with Jeff that the test of our civility will be when competitive races can do that. So, I mean, we and, and Utah has yet to stand that test. So I, we, we saw uh, some tussling for sure in the congressional level, but we also saw some negativity at a local level here. And so I think as citizens, I don't look to the party here. I say as citizens, the test of our civility will be when we reject 
that negativity at all levels. Mm-hmm. Marl, about that uh, governor's race for a moment, uh, it's interesting this week, Spencer Cox already has started to announce people who will be helping him uh, uh, you know, through, through the transition, some, some high-level positions. John Pierpont, new chief of staff, many people know him, was at the Department of Workforce Service for a very long time, uh, announced yesterday Jennifer Napier-Pierce, a senior policy advisor and, co- and the communications director, um, but also his transition team included a, a few formal rivals, right? Amy Winter-Newton, Jeff Birmingham, Jeff Wright, people are running against him. Talk about that, the strategy there. What a good start for Governor-elect Cox, in my opinion. I'm going to go back to what you just said. John Pierpont is pretty universally known and respected. Uh, Inside Baseball said that a number of different candidate winners would have chosen him as chief of staff. And Jennifer Nakebeer Pierce, I think, is a surprise to many. And uh, what a tremendous gathering of different points of view. And as you say, Jason, that also trickled through in his transition committee. He did choose people who are known for being really locally focused or focused on the arts or their specialties. And he appears to be off to a pretty great start with um, representing all of Utah and trying to broaden the seats at the table. So from from my take, the, you know, week one of his um, election, I think he was off to a great start. Well, he certainly doesn't get to have a chance to work into the position, does he? The issues are, are waiting for him. That is true. So, uh, Derek, so let's take the next race. Uh, Attorney General, statewide race, Sean Reyes, uh, almost 70%. Greg Scordis, just over 34%. Any surprises in this race? None whatsoever. No, we've, everyone sort of expected that. I think there were some punches thrown even kind of at the last moment. But I think uh, Sean Reyes ran on what he's done. He ran on his accomplishments, his achievements. And I, I think no real surprises there. And, and frankly, I don't know that there were any surprises at a state level at all, because we also had the other two positions, the auditor and the, uh, the treasurer were also about that same percentage. And so I think statewide, we didn't see anything real surprising. Okay. So t- let's talk about those numbers for a minute. If, if I said so about, about 61% was where Sean was. Uh, any, any elements of that race that you saw? Because Grace Gord is a very well-known Democrat in the state, but also well-known attorney. Yeah. You know, look, I think that I think that uh, the attorney general was particularly weak this year. Uh, even the polling up until you know, right before election day did not show him nearly where uh, an incumbent uh, would normally be. And, um, you know, so I think that for us, it was a little bit disappointing. I think that uh, Greg probably um, would have been a better attorney general in my mind. Uh, we're looking at a guy who, you know, here in Utah in particular, um, you know, universally, all of our um, all of our leaders are saying at this presidential level that we need to be careful about how we move forward. And you know, Sean Reyes is the is the partisan here. He's the guy that's going out and towing a party line, um, you know, saying things about the president and this presidential race that frankly are not appropriate at this time. So a little disappointed with that. So Mara, just one more point on this, because this seems to be a conversation that happens routinely. Whoever is running for attorney general in the state of Utah, you have this same kind of dialogue. Any thoughts about why that's the case? It's interesting, isn't it? We've had now, uh, we're on three or four really controversial attorney generals. Um, and and it, it is an interesting question that I think we should look at about the transparency at a state level. I do think that uh, not being competitive, um, and, I, and I will say I thought Scordis would do a little better. As Jeff said, I thought he would he would perform a little better because of the controversies. Um, I think this is an office that the public would be well served to continue to look 
at donors, particularly in conflicts of interest. Mm -hmm. Always interesting race. Uh, let's go through a couple of these congressional district races. Okay, uh, Derek, start with uh, CD1. Blake Moore, 68%. Darren Perry, 32%. Any big issues in this race? No surprises. Blake's a, a real up-and-comer, very sharp, has got a background in intelligence and business and analysis and that sort of thing. And very well known in the uh, the Ogden area, so no real surprises in in that, or frankly, in the in the uh, second or third congressional district. Okay, well, your your strategy, the Democratic Party, and and in the first congressional district. Yeah, you know, I mean, look, I think that Darren Perry was an ideal candidate for that area. You know, he's. Uh, pretty moderate in his views, uh, obviously well-known in, uh, in the tribal community. So we felt like he was a good candidate there. Um, you know, in a lot of these races, Jason, uh, what this comes down to for some Democrats is really a lack of funding. And I know that that's something that uh, we don't like to talk about in politics, but the reality is, is that this race could have been different if, um, you know, a couple million dollars had been able to be raised. Now, instead, we had 20-some-odd million dollars raised in the fourth district, yeah. which I think is the big race yeah. that we probably want to talk about. Okay. But, uh, and, you know. and there's a lack of funding in the first from our side, too, because for, for that candidate to raise money, it's the same thing. Everyone knew he was going to win by a pretty significant margin. So who's going to contribute? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, let's get to the fourth. But for the sake of making sure everyone sees who the winners were so far, uh, CD2, Chris Stewart is sitting at 62 percent, Kel Weston at 34 percent, and Congressional District 3, John Curtis at 69 percent, Devin Thorpe at 27%. Followed a lot of the polling in those particular districts. Great people. We're going to see most of these names in politics for a little while. So let's let's hit CD4 because this one, Mara, too close to call. Uh, overnight, uh, Burgess Owens went up a bit with the returns that were coming in. Uh, as of last night, about 2,200 votes, but a lot of ballots still to be counted. Right. So as expected, this is down to the wire. We have a history of this race being settled in the 100s. Um, if anything, we should realize every vote counts in this area. I think McAdams still has a slight advantage with the disposition of his district being largely in Salt Lake County. And I think you will see him probably keeping his incremental um, lead just because of the composition of the district. Uh, but what, what a battle and um, what a mix of taste people are left with, right? I mean, both sides, both national parties weighing in um, some vitriol and intensity accusations. And uh, once again, it'll come down into the hundreds. Mm -hmm. So Jeff, this composition is so interesting of this district, right? It's got four counties, essentially. You've got Salt Lake County, Utah County, San Pete, and Juab, right? right? Those rural ones tend to, tend to go towards Derek's side of the aisle. Uh, at Utah County, uh, it's a mix, but Salt Lake. So t talk about how that mix is playing in and what you think we're going to be seeing over the next maybe days. Is it going to be a little yeah. while longer than that? It might be a few more days than a few more days. <laughs> yeah, I think that Mara is, is spot on here. The reality is, is that we've got most of the votes counted in three out of those four counties. Uh, Sam Pete, Juabs, and Utah are, are essentially done, but we have 150,000 votes in Salt Lake County that are still left. To be perfectly honest, at this point in the process, for uh, Ben McAdams to only be down 2,000, I think is a huge advantage for him. And I think that we're going to see over the coming days uh, that lead continue to shrink and then to flip. And I, I really do think that, that it's unlikely Burgess Owens is going to win this race. Derek, what we're seeing to his point here is 
Salt Lake County, the votes that are coming in most recently, about 54% of those are breaking for Ben McAdams, 27% from Utah County for uh, ben McAdams also. Do, do you have a different read? But no, I think I think Jeff's exactly right. I think Jeff and Mar have, have nailed it that, that it really comes down to Salt Lake County. I think that the fact that uh, these other counties have done their work and Salt Lake County is still out there chugging away is not helpful to Burgess in terms of the, the votes. Although the real question is where in the county are those remaining votes coming from? Mm -hmm. Because they're not evenly distributed in terms of the way they're counting. And so if Burgess has a shot, that's it. But that's probably... Uh, I would think if we're looking at the numbers and projecting them out, it probably looks better for McAdams at this point. Mm. Okay, I have to ask the question. This district <laughs> continues to be just such a close one each time. As we know, uh, Mia Love lost this race by about just under 700 yeah. votes. It's gonna be very close again. So, so Mara, uh, it's, it's been 10 years since we've drawn these lines. I just have to ask, I mean, the Republicans get to decide the, what these boundaries are. Are we gonna see any effort to adjust the lines of this fourth congressional district because it turns out to be close. Of course we are. Oh, we are. Uh, yeah, okay. our 10 year <laughs> annual adjustment event. Um, you know, I mean, I think you're going to see the annual Republican take at how do we cut apart Summit County? How do we cut apart Salt Lake County? Uh, back in the day, you used to look at um, price and and the Carbon County area to carve it out of, of Democratic strongholds. Um, as with many places in the nation, Utah is getting pockets of partisanship. And I, um, you know, I, I, I will say I'll give a I'll take a, a quick dig at our friends in the legislature in that they've diluted the ballot measure a little bit um, in an attempt to have a broader conversation about districting. But I do think you'll significantly see an attempt to dilute um, this what is seen as a Democratic hold. Mm -hmm. Thoughts about that, Derek? Well, I actually lived through the last one. I was in the House of Representatives when it occurred, and it's a fascinating process. And I think there are really strong efforts made to be fair. And what we saw last time was that they sort of let anyone who wanted draw lines, present, make explanations why. But I think ultimately one of the prerogatives of the legislature is to draw those boundaries, as Mara said. And and uh, there will be efforts to look. And, and the, the reality is the stronghold in Utah for Democrats is Salt Lake County, but that's not where the growth is. So we're likely to see House and Senate districts being picked up in Utah County and being lost in Salt Lake County. So that'll create some tension, I think, going into this into this year. Okay, we'll be watching that one closely. Uh, Jeff, for just a moment on the presidential race uh, in, in Utah, sitting 59% Trump, 38% Biden. Anything in those numbers you, you see that were maybe even encouraging to the Democratic Party? Look, uh, Joe Biden has done better in the state of Utah than any president since LBJ. I think that um, the reality is, is that people in Utah did not have, um, you know, very much love for Donald Trump. Now, sure, he still won. I'm not. I'm not denying that. But the reality is, is that Joe Biden has really shown that, at least in the state of Utah, there are some people that are going to choose somebody who seems to be a builder rather than somebody who simply tries to tear things down. Mm -hmm. Well, this one's not over at all, is it, Mara? Nationally, uh, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, we had in the last presidential election in Utah, uh, Trump's numbers were were be well below that, but it was because we had a third party candidate. So. Uh, I'm kind of, kind of curious what you make of the fact that we still had 59% of Utahns that were there. Is this, is this just going to be reliably like this for some period of time then? Yeah, I mean, my read on the election was more about people. It, it, was, a, it was about Trump. Not, uh, I, I, I wouldn't read it as a better Democratic performance. I would read it as a, 
as a still a distaste for Trump, although we saw a lot of apologists over the last four years change their opinion about Trump or or, or put aside his his obvious flaws. I think that on a national level, um, we're going to be a performingly Republican state for the next presidential election. Okay, Derek, your take. Well, I think the, the reality is I don't know of any Democrat who was out there saying, I'm voting for Biden. That's why that's what's getting me to the polls. I think Trump was the big motivator on one side or the other. And so, you know, we we here in Utah with the Utah Republican Party, we sort of knew that he would win. And so most of our efforts, frankly, were on more of these local races and looking at CD4, state house and Senate races and seeing what we could do to, to sort of counter what I felt like were some of the... Uh, the fact that we tended to be swimming upstream. I mean, a lot of the, the natural advantages we would tend to have with a, an incumbent president from our own party, we didn't necessarily enjoy as a party. And so it created a little bit of extra work for us. Mm -hmm. Are ready for a lightning round? I want to go through some of these things that were just so interesting on the ballot. I know you don't want to spend a lot of time about the judges. It looks like most they're all going to be retained. All right. They, yeah, all, they, get, are. they all get to <laughs> no stay. Surprise. No surprise on that one. But let's go through a couple of these amendments, just because I think they're just so fascinating how they broke out. Get, get your take on a couple of them. Amendment A, and there's seven of these, which is unprecedented also, because uh, you know, maybe the fact we have so many is why we had such different percentages. Amendment A changes the Utah's constitution to use gender, gender neutral language. Passed 57.75%. Mara, somebody thought that'd be a little higher. I'm taking umbrage with this one. I am taking, I, I will tell you, I'm more exercised about the constitutional amendments. And let me first say, we must start reading them. They are having enormous impacts. The amount of legislative power that's been conveyed over the last four years because we get to the end of our ballot exhausted. So people, please start with these. But I will say, Amendment A, um, I, the public discussion about how almost 500,000 Utahns, 480,000 Utahns voted against gender neutral language um, is remarkable. And we've often been marked as one of the most sexist states in the union. And I will say sexism resides in both males and females. So I was really disturbed. It will pass, but that number of 480,000 Utahns who chose to vote against this is something disturbing and something that should be discussed, I think, among um, our communities about why and where we are with gender. Did you have something on that, Jeff? Uh, I think that, I think Mara's, I mean, it's bizarre. Okay. It's bizarre that, that this amendment and the slavery amendment did not pass with 100% of the people supporting it. We're going we're to have to end with that, with that one. <laughs> Every amendment passed. There are arguments about why some didn't pass by more, but great insights. Utahns, can you talk about that? We ought to take a close look at those amendments. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode of The Hinkley Report. If you like listening to the experts talking about the issues, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app.